Jesse, I've really been working on my catfish detection skills since last week. What's the story this time? A devastating discovery in Nebraska on Christmas Eve 1985 leads investigators on a diabolical odyssey laden with bodies, booze, drugs, sex, and murder, as well as the most unexpected perpetrator imaginable. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about love gone fatally wrong, whether it's deadly affairs, tumultuous trysts, or people pretending to be someone they're not. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. Okay, Andy, this week I have a special treat for you. What is it? (laughs) What is it? (laughs) I can't even handle the surprise. We are going back to Amish country. Oh my God. I remember when we were recording the last one and you said you had another one like in (laughs) in the atmosphere somewhere and now we're here. We're back already because I could not wait. I initially was like, you know, we did one last fall. Let's wait until like further on in the year. But I really wanted to sneak it in, you know, before we took our maternity leave. And I'm really excited I did. And I'm really excited we did it in the order we we did it in because that was like an Amish amuse-bouche. And this is like the whole 12-course dinner of crazy. Oh, shit. Also, our boy Greg Olson also wrote this one. So he is like King Amish true crime. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> yeah, this is our third Greg Olson, I think we also did. Remember Bitch on Wheels? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So guys, if you haven't already listened to it, go back to episode 15. I think it was called um, an Amish, an Amish, no, a murder in Amish country, like buggies, blood and betrayal or something ridiculous like that. Um, And this one I'm definitely going to title Amish serial killer, colon, Non-electric buggy loo. <laughs> okay. Wait, he's a serial killer? Yeah. I mean, we got at least three, maybe five murders. Shit. Yeah. So get out, get out your hand and count them down, kids, because we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> start this one. I'm officially getting weird. It's like really late here. <laughs> Andy had to, we had to wait till Andy was out of work. And then I had some stuff going on. So obviously it's way too late for this pregnant lady, but I'm going to try to pull it through, pull it together. Also, just so you guys know, this is probably one of the more sexual episodes we've had, um, which is surprising because you wouldn't think that from an Amish episode. But this guy really defies all odds. So a little sexual content warning for you here. More than Master Bob? 
Yeah, more than Master Bob. And I edited out so much sex. Like, That's like embarrassing for Master Bob. Like your episode's <laughs> called Master Bob and the Amish Bugaloo is going to be more sexual than you. Like, sorry. I think a lot of things were embarrassing about Master Bob, to be true, <laughs> honest. <laughs> like the fact that it, this guy's dick works. Let's just say that. This, this Amish guy, he gets down, all right? Okay, that that's enough for the sex talk for now. We'll get into it later because right now we're going right back to Christmas Eve, 1985. Shit, I was literally, it's my first Christmas. It's your first Christmas. Eve, yeah. And while you were an adorable infant, loved and cared for, over in Chester, Nebraska, something else was going on. Chuck Cleveland was a truck stop owner in his mid-40s who decided to hunt for a few pheasant on his way into town to get a haircut for the holiday. As one does. (laughs) As one does in rural Nebraska. Christmas music played over the radio of his 83 Ford pickup, and he whistled along as he steered the truck to a remote field not too far from the Nebraska-Kansas state line that boasted several gold ring neck pheasants, just the type of bird his wife loved to fix up for special occasions. When he parked and stepped out of the cozy warm truck, the 30 below zero wind chill slashed through his winter jacket. His eyes scanned the barren cornfield for the colorful birds and instead rested on a small bit of blue that seemed out of place in the sea of gray and brown. Standing at the edge of a roadside drainage ditch, he spotted what had attracted his attention, partially covered with brambles and prairie grass was a tiny dead body dressed in blue one-piece footy pajamas. I'm sorry, Andy. This one's going to get rough. We're starting rough. Cleveland believed it to be a little girl. Her hand glazed over with ice and her little body flat and stiff on the ground. It appeared that the child's brunette hair was neatly brushed and parted and its hand had been placed on its chest. Horrified, Chuck used the two-way radio in his truck to have his bookkeeper call the police and drove back to the highway to meet them. Shaking, he thought, you don't put a child's body out in a ditch unless you got something to hide. I mean, for real. Obviously. (laughs) Chuck was, of course, correct. The man who placed that poor little soul in the desolate Nebraska cornfield was a keeper of many secrets, deadly, dirty, evil secrets that would consume his life and cause the deaths of at least three people who trusted him the most and maybe two others. This is the story of Amish serial killer and gay philanderer Eli Stutzman. Amish serial killer and gay philanderer. Philanderer? Philanderer. <laughs> philanderer. The philanderer. The flanderling Amish <laughs> gay Ned man. Ned Flanders. <laughs> yeah. He's not only gay, he's a serial killer and Amish. <laughs> That was out of order. Okay, not only trying. Amish, but is gay and a serial killer. <laughs> yes, he's not only and Amish. A philanderer. He is gay, philandering, and a serial killer. He's got a whole lot of stuff going on. This guy. Wow, what's his name? 
Eli Stutzman, which is kind of insane because our last Amish murderer was also named Eli. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I think that they have like a couple popular names that they just name over and over again. Not on my list of baby name options. No, I actually used to love the name Eli. And then after doing this podcast, no, sir, no, siree. No. no. Okay. So let's talk about Eli Stutzman. Eli Stutzman was born on September 28th, 1950, the fourth of 13 children born to Eli and Susan Stutzman. Yeah, a lot of kids in the Amish country of Apple Creek, Ohio. Wait. They were, yeah, same, same area. I think, um, yeah, our Eli from our first story was from the early 2000s. Because remember, he was an early like MySpace adopter. Yeah. This is taking place in like the 70s and 80s. Wow. So this is like Amish, the prequel. There's like something in the water for sure. Yeah, watch out for Apple Creek, Ohio. So they were Schwarzentruber Amish, which is a more strident and conservative sect of Amish. If you are more interested in a complete breakdown, I really went, you know, in length detailing the different sects and stuff. So you can definitely go back to episode 15 and check that out. And young Eli was rebellious and mischievous by nature, not a great fit with his strict one-handed minister father. Oh, yes. Eli Sr., known not very creatively as one-handed Eli, was only 18 years old when his hand was caught in a sorghum press, which if you haven't seen, I googled. It's like this totally medieval, scary looking device used to press a, uh, you guessed it, sorghum, (laughs) which is an ancient grain used in cereals and like for a gluten replacement for the most part. His fingers, this is Eli's dad, Eli Sr. Yep. His fingers were crushed, infection set in, and Papa Eli ended up needing his hand amputated. He was fit with a hook eventually, and it didn't slow old Eli down a bit. Yeah, old hook-handed Eli. So you can imagine how hard it would be to be a young man with an imposing, strict, hook-handed minister dad. I mean, that's scary. How old was he when he lost his hand? I mean, old Eli was 18 years old, so he still popped out those 13 kids after this. Wow. So Mm -hmm. he got it on with the hook. He really got it on with the hook. (laughs) wonder how that was in the bedroom. I mean, either really scary or really fun, depending on what you're into. I mean, I'm, I have, I mean, I know your brain is going here too, but think like the different contraptions you could like screw onto that thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It definitely didn't stop him. 13 kids, yo. Uh, So little Eli was known as a habitual troublemaker and an almost pathological liar. At 16, he met beautiful Ida Gingrich at a singing, which is an Amish youth gathering that takes place in a barn. Ida was also Schwarzentruber, sweet and lovely with wide set hazel eyes and ash blonde hair that was hid under her bonnet. For her part, Ida was attracted to the fit young man who stood at five foot six feet tall and a lean 140 pounds. Baby. Yeah, he's a he's like a like a compact little guy. He's like a tight, tiny guy. Eli's best feature was his sparkling blue eyes. 
So the two began to court and both eventually became baptized into the Amish church. Eli, who only had an eighth grade education himself, somehow became the one room schoolhouse teacher and his parents breathed a sigh of relief at what seemed like their wayward son finally getting his life in order. However, Eli's life was actually just about to go off the rails. At 21, he bristled at his father's strict rules and suffocating control. One-handed Eli even insisted that young Eli's paychecks come to him and he would dole out what he thought was appropriate to his son. Uh, which, I'm 21, dad. Yeah, you're 21. Like he should be able to handle his own finances. So Eli moved out of the family home and to a farm across the way that belonged to an old order Amish family whose practices were slightly less restrictive than the Schwarzentrubers. In early 1972, Eli began to suffer from mental issues that manifested in physical ailments. Often collapsing or having muscle seizures, he reported to reflexologists and chiropractors, the preferred health providers of the Amish, but no one could help him. One mental breakdown resulted in the strange physiological reaction of an hours-long erection that was so painful it brought Eli to tears. Exquasme? <laughs> I was telling this to Nathaniel. He's like, how did the author know about that? How did we get this information? And he, Greg Olson went deep on this one. I mean, he must have interviewed hundreds of people. And apparently the farmer he lived with, like came across him in the barn and Eli was like crying. And he's like, Eli, what's wrong? And he's like, I've had this erection for hours and it's killing me. Can he not just jerk off? I mean, I don't know. I don't know what he tried. The old farmer was like, oh, well, that's, that's hard. <laughs> Get it? It's a, it's a pun. I got it. <laughs> it wasn't very hard to uh, figure out. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know what the far the farmer actually said, but yeah, he reported it to Greg Olson. I mean, you do know about Amish though. Are they able to jerk off? I do not know if they're able to jerk off. I mean, I'm assuming that it's a sin too. I mean, it seems like most fun things that don't create babies are. That is wildly ignorant of me. So don't pay any attention to that last thing. I have no idea what their relationship with masturbation is. Like that was wildly speculative and inappropriate. <laughs> so yeah, so he's having a really hard time around this time. No pun intended that time. Wow, I just cannot get off it. Whoa, I did it again. I am blushing. I'm like right red right now. So, <laughs> apparently the ninth oh. month of pregnancy gives me crazy sexual puns. That's just what's happening now. Oh my God. Oh God. All okay. right. All right. So Eli began to consider leaving the Amish lifestyle and his father decided it was time for him to make medical decisions for his son. One-handed Eli went to the police and had young Eli placed on an involuntary psychiatric hold. When Eli was released, he decided he needed more distance from his father. And in August of 1972, he moved in with a new order Amish couple named Liz and Leroy Chupp. So he's also getting slowly more progressive, moving from Schwarzentruber to old order 
to new order. And then usually it's like Mennonites or the next and what they consider, you know, our lifestyle or most of America's lifestyle is English. So here Eli began to truly shed the Amish ways. He cut his hair, he ordered English style clothes, and he even got his driver's license, which is a huge no-no. 10 days after he got his license, he purchased a car and he really went for like the English lifestyle full force. He began dating multiple women and even patronizing strip clubs. Ida Gingrich still held out hope that Eli would reform his ways and continue to write to him to convince him to return to the Amish. And he did return her letters sporadically, but for the most part, he was really enjoying his new hedonistic lifestyle. He got a job working a night shift at a hospital, and he even got a Mennonite girl he was dating pregnant and paid for her abortion. Yeah, so he's gone full to the other side over here. Eli went to baseball games, SeaWorld, horse races, and even rock concert. In short, he was having a good time. But he was also getting into trouble. In late October, Eli moved in with a farming couple named the Stoles and bizarrely somehow got involved in a marijuana selling scheme, eventually going undercover for the sheriff's office to rat on some Amish friends of his who were two-bit growers. So the the details of the origin of him becoming an informant were very murky. It was very unclear whether he was doing something else and he got caught, which is, you know, how often they find informants, you know? Later on, Eli would claim that the brothers he turned in were making death threats against him, including penning several violent letters that he turned over to the police. Both men strenuously denied those claims. In November of 1974, Eli was found by Ed Stoll, the farmer he worked for, laying in a pool of his own blood in the Stoll barn, stabbed nearly to death. What? Yeah. So when he came across Eli close to death, Eli said, what took you so long? And then he explained that he had been jumped and stabbed by two men while performing farm chores. Eli was rushed to the hospital where he stayed for five days. He had almost bled out. Immediately, the sheriff's office was deluged by accusations. If Eli was an informant, why hadn't they protected him? Where were the attempted murderers now? Like they weren't arresting those two guys. Investigating the stabbing, some evidence didn't line up. Eli's wounds were neat and clean, not jagged as one would expect from a violent attack. He also had mysterious deep needle marks up and down his arms. Drugs. (laughs) Well, this is even weirder and more nefarious than drugs. Like, wait till I tell you what he actually was up to. So um, this is an account of what the police figured out was actually going on from Greg Olson's book, Abandoned Prayers, Our Primary Text, An Incredible True Story of Murder, Obsession, and Amish Secrets. Greg Olson doing it again. Oh, I love Greg Olson. This is a meticulously researched book. I mean, it's like 500 pages and there's details and accounts from literally everyone in Eli's life from the very beginning. So crazy. On November 22nd, when the truth came out, it shook everyone who had been sucked into Stutzman's carefully orchestrated tale of betrayal and brutality. Mm. 
Sheriff Frost went out to Stole Farms, carrying the stack of threatening letters. Eli did this to himself, Frost said, seeming satisfied and cracking a difficult case. He even wrote the letters. Ed Stoll found the scenario hard to believe, but Frost compared the letters to some other writings made by Stutzman. The typed letters also matched a typewriter found in Stutzman's bedroom at Mary Jane and Walter Stoll's house. What kind of a man would do something like this, Ed thought at the time. Beyond Stutzman's confession, there was more proof that it had all been a setup. Investigators recovered a single-edge razor blade from the barn. In addition, they found a large IV needle used for cows. The needle had human blood on it. Stoll felt used. The whole thing made him sick. While I was hauling up my last load, Eli was running around the barn, messing it up and squirting his own blood on the walls, he said. What? He was trying to like make it look like more of a frenzied attack. So he used the IV to extract his blood to make the scene look messier. Ew. Super ew. Super ew. Psychotic. Mm-hmm. It was true that Stutzman had worked in a hospital and boasted about his expansive medical knowledge. He had given plenty of IVs and he knew which vein would give the best show of blood. He had foreshadowed all of it by sending the notes to himself. One thing Stutzman hadn't planned on was Ed Stoll taking such a long time with the last haul. The delay almost cost him his life. What took you so long, Stutzman had said when Stoll found him on the floor. Now to Stoll, the statement had a whole new meaning. The Millers were never brought to trial. That was the brothers because the prosecution's star witness was mentally disturbed. Whoa. Yep. So the Stoles were even more horrified when wife Mary Jane found not only stacks of gay pornography under Eli's bed, but a whole trove of vibrators and ticklers. Ooh, a little tickler. (laughs) Yeah. Also, where does he charge those vibrators? That was... I don't know because this is still an Amish couple. And it's like 1974, so there's no solar. I do not know how these vibrators were operating. Battery, I guess. I guess he snuck some batteries in. I don't know anything about 70s era vibrators. I really don't. No. No. Eventually, Eli's lies became too much and the Stoles fired him and asked him to leave the farm. Eli told his friends that he had seen Stoles steal some farm equipment and had been fired because he didn't want the witness to his crimes hanging around. This was, of course, a lie. So everyone was shocked when Eli decided to rejoin his family in the Amish community. He goes back now after all of this craziness. Yeah, but that makes sense. He doesn't, he can't stay where he is, you know? Yeah, he had nowhere else to go. Yeah. And so he confessed his sins. He got his job teaching back and he married Ida Gingrich around Christmas 1975. Mm-hmm. Ida quickly fell pregnant and little Danny was born September 7th, 1976, which is actually Nathaniel's birthday, only like eight years older than Nathaniel. <laughs> <laughs> Though outwardly making all of the right moves in the Amish community, marrying, having children, even buying a farm from a fellow Amish man in Dalton, Ohio, Eli was struggling with his sexuality and general satisfaction in life. Eli reportedly hit on a male taxi driver in the Amish community, offering him money to let Eli blow him. Oh, 
Yeah, the taxi driver kicked him out of the cab. Though it's unconfirmed, it was suggested that Eli was maybe finding some gentleman slightly more amenable than the driver elsewhere. Of course, Eli was stuck in, you know, a general society that didn't accept homosexuality in the 1970s. So you can imagine how sinful it would have been considered in one of the most conservative Amish sects. No, I know. It's, could you, I like cannot even imagine. I know. Like there's a lot that we're going to hate Eli for, like a lot, a lot. He's a bad guy, but you can kind of sympathize with him here because he is, just trapped not being able to be his authentic self in a a closet seriously yeah this community would never accept that you know no they don't even let them drive they're not gonna let them love freely you know no no it's not even an option at all that's why I was curious when you were talking about like the mental issues that like came through in physical ways I'm like I mean I'm sure it was suppression and Yeah, he's totally suppressing who he is. He's suppressing his sexual urges. He's suppressing his identity. I mean, all of that would manifest physically because it would be terribly taxing on your soul, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that would make so much sense. And it's obvious that he couldn't speak to anyone about it. There's literally no recourse. There's no one telling you that it's getting going to get better because it's just not, you know? Yeah, there's no option. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's why when Danny was only six months old and Ida found out she was pregnant again, Eli felt no joy. Every child would tie him closer to the Amish faith and his family forever when all he wanted to do was live freely. Ida was due by Thanksgiving and Eli counted down the days with dread, less an excited father and more a convicted man awaiting execution. So sad. So sad. It's sad for Ida too, because, you know, she deserves a husband who could be the fully there, you know? Well, Eli wouldn't die, not yet at least, but someone sure would. On the evening of July 11th, a fire mysteriously broke out in the Stutzman's barn. At midnight, a hired boy who lived at the Stutzman's awoke to see the barn ablaze. He noted that baby Danny was safely in his crib in the house, but Ida and Eli were nowhere to be seen. He ran out the door to the barn and finally located his boss. So this is his account um, as reported to Greg Olson. On the front porch, the boy ran into Stutzman. The Amish man's dilated pupils made his eyes seem black, only rimmed in blue. Go to Harley Gerber's. Have him call the fire department. Hurry. So the hired boy is also named Eli. So young Eli, so many Eli's. That's a good band name too. So many Eli's. Um, Young Eli ran past the south side of the barn, away from the flaming north side, his bare feet pressing the surface of the now dry dirt driveway. Over his shoulder, he saw Stutzman pull farm machinery from the barn. A box wagon and tools had already been moved. As he turned the corner where Moser Road meets the driveway, the boy saw Ida motionless on her back. Her eyes were closed. She was very still and only a step or two away from the barn. Ida, Ida, he called as he knelt beside her. What's wrong? Ida, wake up. He touched her, but she didn't budge. Although most of the color was washed from her face, her left cheek and her left hand were pink from the heat. He could see that she was too hot, too close to the fire. Thinking that he'd better tell Eli, the boy ran back and screamed that Ida was hurt. Stutzman just shook his head. 
he already knew. Go to Hurley Gerber's now. Get the Dr. Two Stutzman instructed. He seemed mad that I had not done what he told me, the boy later said. Oh, God. Young, young Eli did an about face. Passing Ida again, he wondered why Stutzman hadn't mentioned that his wife had been hurt in the first place. Why was Eli Stutzman more concerned about the farm equipment than his wife? The crashing of splintering burning timbers and the snap of crunch dry straw riddled the night like gunfire. The frightened boy ran as fast as he could. Ida needed help now. By the time another neighbor arrived to help the Stutzmans, it was clear that Ida was dead. And of course, with her, the baby inside of her. Uh, <sighs> Devastating. Eli's story was that lightning had struck the barn, causing the fire. Ida had woken him, and he had shouted for Ida to alert the neighbors to call the fire department. Instead, she had tried to help him remove expensive farm equipment from the barn before the fire spread. Moments later, Eli found Ida lying face up in the milk house. He said he attempted CPR and mouth-to-mouth, but she was gone. Later, when the neighbor noticed Ida laying perilously close to the fire, the two men dragged her singed body further away from the blazing fire. Eli reported that Ida had a weak heart as a result of a childhood bout of rheumatic fever, and he believed that she had had a cardiac episode as a result of the smoke inhalation and the stress. The coroner noted extensive burns to the left side of Ida's body. Her nylon headscarf had melted into her skull. Of course. I mean, she had multiple burns on her hands and large scratches across her forehead from her nose to her left eyebrow. A deep laceration was apparent in the corner of her mouth, similar to the type of injury a boxer would suffer in the ring. The coroner would note some puzzling details, like the fact that Ida's dress was unpinned and her breast was exposed, which seemed odd for a conservative Amish woman, as well as the case of the injuries to her face and hands. Eli had specified that she had fallen on her back. So how would she have sustained such wounds? In addition, the mud on the front of her dress was barely there, definitely not significant enough to indicate that she had fallen on her front and then rolled on her back. Plus, the mouth and face laceration seemed more indicative of a physical attack rather than a fall, and the blood evidence suggested she was alive when the attack occurred. Nevertheless, the coroner seemed to believe Eli. No one could fathom a peaceful Amish man killing his pregnant wife and committing arson and decided to rule the death of natural causes. So they didn't look into his history of faking his own murder? Not the coroner. The coroner had no idea. Only a couple men were even vaguely suspicious of Eli. So this is, again, from Abandoned Prayers, and this is talking about two men who kind of had an idea. One was a doctor, and the other was the sheriff who knew about the whole previous barn incident. Yeah. Dr. Elton Lehman was one of the first to be troubled over the reports of Ida Stutzman's tragic death. Lehman knew the Stutzmans as well as any non-Amish. The story was a bit unusual in that barn fires occurred frequently in the county, yet he couldn't remember anyone else having died in one. But it was not the unprecedented nature of the woman's death that would bother him in the end. Dr. Lehman, who doubled his duty to the rural community as assistant coroner, made a call to Coroner Questel to discuss business, including the barn fire. During the conversation, the coroner said that he had named heart attack as the cause of the 26-year-old woman's death. 
The statement brought a sharp response. Heart attack, Dr. Lehman said, incredulous. That's what killed her. It wasn't the smoke or the fire, Questel said, not knowing that the woman's heart had been as strong as his own. Dr. Lehman asked how the coroner had come up with that ruling. The husband told us, Questel answered. Ida Stutzman had a weak heart, always had. She collapsed in the milk house because of her heart condition. <sighs> Lehman was stunned. The case had been closed. Notes from the coroner and Polaroids of Ida's dead face had been locked up in the coroner's file cabinet. Everything neatly put away. Eli told them Ida had a bad heart. It was Eli's word, Lehman thought. But he knew that Ida Stutzman hadn't had a weak heart. He had been her doctor since she was 16. Why did Stutzman tell that story, he wondered. It didn't feel right, but he gave the Amish man the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps someone had gotten his story wrong. Dr. Lehman, like Questel and the others, was unaware of Stutzman's history of deceit and violence. Of course, Sheriff Jim Frost was all too familiar with it. And after the barn fire, he even talked about it. At a social gathering at his home, Frost told a friend he was skeptical about Stutzman's story of the fire. He said he felt Ida had been murdered. He, Frost, told me that he thought Stutzman had beaten his wife, possibly with a rock, and planned to put her in the fire to destroy the evidence. He was frustrated he couldn't get enough to pin it on him. There wasn't enough to go on, the Wayne County man said. Whoa. Yeah, heavy. Eli played up the grieving widower act and the entire Amish community came together to raise his barn, all offering free labor and donating supplies. Not only had Eli rid himself of an unwanted wife and unborn child, he now had a brand new renovated barn built to his custom specifications. Unbelievable. Oh, this guy's the worst. Even more fishy was that after giving the men the plans, Eli mostly stayed in the house napping or resting rather than working alongside the generous volunteers who were building his barn with their own blood, sweat, tears, money, and supplies. Wow. Yeah, he's just like, oh, I'm just emotionally too upset right now because my wife died. Mm-hmm. Over the next few months, Eli appeared to be in a downward spiral. Old one-handed Eli reportedly caught his son about to commit suicide and wrestled the gun away from him. And this like rings very false to me because it seems like it was set up so his father would find him because usually when people commit suicide with guns, it's not something that they're sitting there and laboring over and wrestling with the gun like it's over quickly so the the fact that somehow his father came upon him in this split second seems unlikely I think he was playing up a lot of this stuff for sympathy uh, sympathy in the community you know yeah he said that he was having terrible dreams he was beset by nightmares and his erratic behavior forced a lot of family members to babysit little Danny for long periods of time yeah that's what happens when you murder your wife Yeah. Uh, So Ida's brothers reported something deeply disturbing as well. Both teenage boys stayed with Eli for different intervals during the barn raising and shared a bed as the house was sparsely decorated and Eli was unaccustomed to having a house full of guests. While sharing a bed, both boys reported Eli attempting to molest them by thrusting his erect penis into their backs. Ew. That's not how that works. No, and these kids were only 15 years old. 
Gross. Super gross. They ended up removing themselves from the situation and like sleeping on the floor instead, but never mentioned it to others until much, much later as they generously assumed that grief makes people do funny things. Oh, bless their hearts. Much too nice. Yeah. On July 11th, 1978, one year to the day after the fire that killed Ida, Eli had a mental break and was discovered by his in-laws screaming at Danny, who was a toddler, about where Danny had put the stones and ended up then collapsing in seizures. The neighbors called emergency services and Eli was placed on a psychiatric hold. Eli eventually recovered and was released, but had grown sick of the Amish community's intrusions in his life and decided to stop attending church, which was obviously a big no-no in the Amish faith. By Christmas of that year, Eli had once again left the community. He decided that his days of temperance, virtue, and grief were over, and it was high time he got to live out his days exactly as he wanted. To kick off his new lifestyle, Eli advertised in the back pages of The Advocate, a Los Angeles-based magazine devoted to gay men's interests. His first ad read, Ohio white male, 140 pounds, 5'6", light brown hair, blue eyes. I'm 28 years old and have a three-year-old. I like male companions, cooking, horse racing, and country music. I'm tired of the bar scene. I am a country guy and prefer country living. Hope to find someone to meet the gap. Which is actually like kind of downright wholesome as far as these sort of want ads go. Yeah, but definitely like, I feel like there'd be a guy out there who would totally want to get on that. Oh, for sure. So a year later, he was still advertising. And his new updated advertisement was well-built horseman. 29, 5'6", 140, brown hair, blue eyes with a hairy body, looking for same to share our lives together. Send photo and phone number to his address in Dalton, Ohio. So do you think his first one worked or no? It did. And then he was like, I want to get more specific. I want some, some hairy dudes. So yeah, he ended up becoming very popular and hosting several men at his home in the weeks to come. He took a road trip to Florida to party with some other gay men he had connected with through the ads. Eli felt like he was finally living and he was very much over Amish country and his nosy neighbors and well-meaning relatives. So he ended up selling his farm for $200,000, which was over four times what he had paid for it only five years earlier. Holy shit. Uh Uh-huh, but there's a reason for that. This action further estranged him from the Amish. Amish preferred to keep family farms in the faith. They would sell to new up-and-coming young Amish couples for highly discounted rates, which was the entire reason Eli and Ida had scored such a great real estate deal. When it was time for Eli to sell... He didn't sell it to a young Amish couple for the same price. He said, screw the Amish and sold it to Englishers for the full market value. Uh, Well, I mean, if he already doesn't care about the faith, why would he keep it in the faith? He doesn't give a shit. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't care how he got into it. He's like, I want to, I'm looking out for number one, you know? Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Cold as ice. Raw doggy. (laughs) There's a lot of raw dogging that happens in this story. A lot. 
Eli packed up little Danny and set off for an odyssey out west that would lead to lots of sex, like I just said, drug, alcohol abuse, and ultimately murder. Again. Again. More murder. More murder. Eli and Danny's first stop out west in 1982 landed them at a ranch with a man Eli had met on The Advocate outside of Durango, Colorado. This part of the United States is known as the Four Corners because it's the only place in the country that four states touch. Utah, yep. Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico. Very good, Andy. This was our, our map moment with love murder. <laughs> 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 the man Eli took up with goes by a pseudonym in the book. So we're going to just stick with that. So this guy is is not his real name, but we're going to go with Terry Palmer. He met and fell in love with Eli and they purchased the ranch together. On the outside, the ranch seemed like a great place for five-year-old Danny, but Eli was a neglectful and distant father. Terry ended up reluctantly parenting the child and growing super resentful as Eli cheated on him with just about any guy who would go with him. Oh, no. Yeah. And I mean, he thought it was fine that Eli had a kid, but he was mostly in love with Eli. So he's stuck like parenting this guy's kid. Well, that guy is running around sleeping with whoever he can get his hands on. Whoa. Yeah. I wonder if he like slept with someone in each state one time. <laughs> like one day he's like the four corners. You know? I'll call that the four horners. <laughs> oh God. Oh God. Classic. So good. Um, so yeah. Eli hit the Four Corners gay scene hard and didn't give a flying figaroo what anyone thought about that, including his so-called partner. Here's how one of Eli's lovers described him and his lifestyle to Greg Olson. At 39, Kenny Hankins, not his real name, ran a successful business in one of the nondescript dusty little towns around the Four Corners area. Hankins was closeted because of the small town community, yet he found action on the endless highways of the desert. His CB handle, WW, stood for weenie washer. What? <laughs> weenie washer. Like He likes washing other people's schlongs. Yeah, but like with his mouth. Oh, I get it. <laughs> Took you a second. I thought maybe he was like really into like cleaning some dick. Like, you know, like. I hope he just, did like before, maybe. I, Give I, it, I absolutely support that. I just get a good washcloth wipe going on at least. You don't know how long these guys are on the road. Sweating, eating their truck stop oh, food. Yeah, no, I, a weenie wash is not a bad thing. <laughs> no, wash those weenies. Everyone, wash your weenie. Wash other people's weenies. We need all the washed weenies we could get. <laughs> Whenever he had the opportunity, Hankins climbed into the air conditioned comfort of his catalog to prowl for men who wanted a blowjob. He found a little bit of danger and more than enough takers among the truckers passing through. Hankins met Eli Stutzman in a bar at the Holiday Inn in the late fall of 1982. As far as Hankins could see, Eli Stutzman was a gay sex symbol, a well-muscled body, blue eyes, and a neat mustache. 
He was a real hunk. He would get the attention at any bar he went into. Where in the hell did Mother Nature go wrong because he's so attractive, so physically fit, Hankins later asked. Stutzman's biggest attraction, according to Hankins anyway, was the size of his penis. Eli would always wear Levi's ironed and was the type that made damn sure of his pants. He was enormous. I would say he would make John Holmes look sick, he said. Oh my God. (laughs) So I'm not done with this passage, but I have to interject that I had to do so much questionable Googling for this episode. (laughs) For a heavily pregnant mother of soon to be two, there is a lot of nasty shit on my Google search right now. Like I didn't know what a tickler was. So I had to look that up, which kind of is just, it's like what it sounds like. It's like, I mean, it's like an S&M thing. I think that's like, it looks kind of like a a feather thing. Yeah. Like a stick with a feather. It's like a stick with a feather. It's like that that simple. Yeah, I didn't know what that was. And number two, John Holmes. Like, do you know who John Holmes is? Yeah, John Holmes is the porn star from that movie that... Um, Boogie Nights. Yeah, Boogie Nights. Yes, okay. So I did not know this. I did not know the provenance. I don't provenance. know why you didn't just text me because out of context, <laughs> I wouldn't have known that it was from the story. And I would have just been like, this is a normal thing to text Sandy and ask her. Of course you would because you're my ride or die. There's like, I could text you any weird shit and you'd be like, let me take this seriously. You're not like, why are you asking this? You'd be like, for sure. I'll just answer this for you because you definitely need to know who John Holmes is. Yeah. Well, okay. So for people who don't know, he was an apparently prolific porn star in the 70s. And from Wikipedia, Holmes was best known for his exceptionally large penis, which was, quote, heavily promoted as the longest, thickest, hardest, and longest lasting in the adult film industry with seminal volume, second only to fellow adult actor Peter North. Then they went on in the Wikipedia to mention Boogie Nights. So yes, he's the inspiration for Mark Wahlberg's character. Have you seen it? Oh my gosh, like a million years ago, like when it first came out. I have not revisited. Oh, good. It's so good, but it's also so sad. It's good. Yeah. I mean, he's a little special. Yeah, it's really sad by the end. Like I wanted a triumphant pornography story, not a sad pornography story. No, it's not. But it definitely like, it's fun. I feel like it'd be fun to watch right now because there's like so many party scenes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we could live vicariously through it. And there's so many people doing it without masks. <laughs> yeah. And without um, condoms. And without nothing. No, no protection anywhere. So yeah. So at the time that they met, Stutzman told Hankins that his lover and ranch partner, Terry Palmer, had threatened to harm him if he ever invited any friends out. Don't you ever bring anybody to this fucking house and don't you ever tell anybody that I play around because I'll beat your ass. Stutzman claimed Palmer had said. Palmer denied that he said that. But of course, he didn't want his lover running around with all these guys. Of course not. And while he's taking care of his kid. Exactly. When Hankins dropped Stutzman off at the ranch, the ex-Amish man said, I'd invite you in, but you'll never know. I don't want Palmer to fly off the handle. Stutzman Hankins and the other gay men in their circle lived in a haze of marijuana and a white cloud of coke when they could get it. Stutzman also used poppers, amyl nitrate, or the similar formulas butyl nitrate or alkyl nitrate, were considered the drugs of choice for gays in the early 1980s. Inhaling the drugs heightened and prolonged the sensation of orgasm. Popular brands among Stutzman's crowd included Rush and Thrust. 
As far as Hankins could see, Stutzman had been a user for some time. Look, sex, drugs, and rock and roll is all fine and good when you're single. But Eli was a dad. And had a partner. Who and had a partner. With. Yeah, this is not this is not a good look. And it got even worse because his treatment of Danny would soon go from benign neglect to something significantly more unsettling and sinister. Oh no. Many of Eli's lovers reported unease at the casual way Eli would engage sex directly in front of his young son. And a guest at a party Danny was at was horrified to catch the little boy approaching men to grab and fondle their crotches. While Eli laughed. He's like five, six years old. That is so fucked up. So fucked up. When one woman who was married to a bisexual fling of Eli's tried to put a stop to it, five-year-old Danny said his father told him to and like showed him how. When she brought it up with Eli, he said point blank that he was training Danny not to like women and instead like men. Wow. Just gross. Another man moved... It's disgusting. Another man moved into the ranch with Palmer and Eli and was shocked when the child tried to reach into his robe and grab his penis. The man admonished Danny about respecting private parts, but did nothing to report Eli to the authorities, nor did the woman who had witnessed Danny at the party. Both were afraid of being outed to the police. Outed sexually? Yeah, because the one woman's husband was gay or bisexual And the other guy was gay. And so he's like, if I say anything about this kid, they're going to be like, oh, you're just a creepy old gay guy who definitely like did something to him, you know? This is like completely why it's so, 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 so bad to pass judgment and marginalize communities because when people are forced to live in the dark due to prejudice and violence against them, this is the sort of behavior that can go unreported out of fear, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, Terry Palmer finally had enough of Eli's increasingly dangerous behaviors. I mean, there was obviously the uncomfortable thing that he's doing with his son, but also he was having sex with all of these men unprotected. He said to one of his lovers who like suggested he use a condom, he's like, I'm never, never have, never will I ever fuck in a sock. Ugh, I hate people like that. It's just so irresponsible. It's gross. Yeah. It's just, it's no consideration for anyone but your own pleasure, you know? Yeah. So he finally kicked him out. The two figured out the financial details of the ranch and Eli took off for Austin, Texas, where he had another man waiting in the wings. With child? With his child. He took his child with him, unfortunately. In November of 1983, Eli moved himself and Danny in with a new boyfriend, but the honeymoon was short-lived. Within only weeks, the two had broken up. So this poor kid is being like hauled around the country with no stability, meeting many of these boyfriends who are, you know, he's trying to have sexual congress with them in front of his child. Gross. It's just so gross. If this was like, you know a single mother in heterosexual relationships, I'd feel the same way, you know? It's not sure. healthy behavior to to show your child. No. 
Meanwhile, he wrote to his family and the Gingriches a constant stream of lies. How well Danny was doing in school, where they were attending church, and how close he was to marrying a fictitious girlfriend. Oh whom, my God. Yeah, he's just making all this shit up. He later had to kill off his girlfriend by saying months later that she had died of cancer. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean... If he's going to kill off his le- his wife in real life, I guess he doesn't care about his fake girlfriend too. No. I was like at least he at least it was cancer this time and not murder. <laughs> yeah. Friends and family back home couldn't believe Eli's bad luck. First his wife and now his almost fiance. In reality, Eli was broadening his horizons by joining a very early computer dating site called Compucopia. Mm-hmm that allowed men to input sexual vitals, likes and dislikes, and let a computer match them with the perfect date. Between that, still listing ads with The Advocate, and now living in more progressive Austin, Eli was just rolling in available men. So Rolling in dick. Rolling in dick. Like I said, Greg Olson goes into great detail of so many of Eli's romantic and sexual relationships that even I, and you know, I'm a nosy bitch who likes to know what's going on in everyone's bedroom and their relationship. Even I was like, Greg Olson, I got to tap out. This is way too much boning for me. I cannot handle it anymore. There's just too much sex happening here. Like every guy he interviewed was like. Dicks flying everywhere. <laughs> dicks flying everywhere. It's like I, I got it a gangbang, literarily, that I did not want to be at. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> suffice to say, he was banging a lot. I will not put you all through what I read. <laughs> if you're curious, read Abandoned Prayers. I was going to say, I feel like you're cheating us a bit. <laughs> this is like a lot about different sex toys and positions. And if he was a top or a bottom, it was like. <laughs> in addition to his lovers, Eli was building a tiny community there with some friends as well. One man who ended up being Eli's employee, roommate, and platonic friend was a guy named Glenn Pritchett. Glenn was born in 1961 to strict Mormons, and Eli and Glenn bonded over escaping from rigid conservative religions. Glenn had had trouble in school, getting into drugs and alcohol, and getting generally poor grades. His parents placed him in a series of church-based foster homes, and by the time he was 16, volunteers to take the boy were exhausted, and he was sent to a boy's home, which happened to be about a block away from an intention home, which was a short-term facility for troubled and defiant teenagers, which is where he met a girl with a similar background named Sandy Turner, also a pseudonym. And the two gained permission from Sandy's mother to wed at only 16 years old. Oh God. Way too young. But shockingly, actually, the young marriage kind of helped Glenn clean up his act, and he joined the Coast Guard at 17. The couple had two children, uh, but Glenn's bad behavior resurfaced, and he began to drink heavily and was eventually discharged from the Coast Guard. After a couple DUIs and a refusal to seek help, Sandy divorced Glenn and moved on with her life. After Glenn attacked one of Sandy's boyfriends long after their separation, Sandy and the Montana police told Glenn to take a freaking hike. He worked odd jobs in several states before ending up in Austin, where he met and began working for Eli. 
Okay. The two men also befriended a middle-aged woman named Wanda whose house had been worked on by the company. She introduced Eli and Glenn to her nephew, Denny, who was also gay, and the group ended up becoming quite close, often frequenting gay bars together, despite Wanda and Glenn being straight, which I don't blame them. Gay bars are super fun. Yeah. I also bet they're super fun in Austin. Like, Austin is so fun. Austin's pretty great. I feel like it's the coolest town in Texas. For Absolutely. Sure. 100%. Denny eventually moved in with Eli, Glenn, and Danny and began a sexual relationship with Eli that did peter out after Eli's refusal to take the relationship seriously and his insistence on bringing home strange men for S&M themed threesomes. Huh. Yeah. Well, so tickler party. Well, they they talked about one thing in the book that sounded terrible, like really abusive and like not fun. And Denny, I don't know, like it was like Eli was being like really aggressively rough with this guy who was like so drunk that he couldn't really like say no. Like not fun, like icky. Icky. Icky, yeah. And that's when like Denny was like, I'm tapping out of this because you are not the type of boyfriend I want. And this is not the type of sex I want, you know? Good for him. Yeah. So they stayed living together, um, but they weren't a couple anymore. Okay. So both Denny and Glenn were becoming a little uncomfortable with some of Eli's behaviors. The strange men at all hours, notwithstanding, Eli was also supplementing his income by moving large quantities of weed and had begun to slap little Danny around. Oh, God. Yeah, it was especially cruel because Danny had a stutter and Eli believed the way to correct it was to smack the boy every time he heard the speech issue. Wow. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, only exacerbates the issue so poor little Danny would just never talk. Of course. Why would you? Yeah. One of his former employees, a man who goes by the pseudonym Cal Hunter in the book, details his relationship with his employer and the abuse he witnessed to author Greg Olson in the following passage. In April 1985, the 30-year-old Indianapolis man had found his way to Austin where he was hired by Stutzman at the Texas Employment Commission. As it turned out, Stutzman was looking for a new partner. He talked of big money. Eli said he made more than $60,000 in the first quarter of the year doing remodeling for out-of-towners, recounted Hunter. I didn't know what was happening at first, but I later learned how such things went. The real estate management agent would send Stutzman on a job that would cost ten grand to fix and charge the owner thirty grand. They each got their extra piece. His other partner had gone back north to his family or something, which was uh, Glenn Pritchett. He told me I could turn a real good profit working for him and eventually setting up a satellite operation. Hunter did not know that Stutzman was gay until he had Hunter go to his post office box by the Sears off of I-35 to pick up mail. What I found shocked me, Hunter later oh, said. No. In among the stacks of letters and bills was a form letter or brochure of some kind from California. I thought it was a straight sex brochure. Had something about deep throating, so I read it. But it was about, <laughs> wait, no. That's something about deep throating, so I read it. <laughs> so you, you have my interest. <laughs> so clearly this gives me cause to read another man's mail. But it was not about deep throating. 
It was about fist fucking. How to put your hand up there safely. (laughs) There was something else about bestiality too. I thought I'd picked up the wrong mail, but it had Eli's name on it. I must admit, I felt a little pity for Eli, Hunter said on another occasion. So this starts off in a way that you're like, oh, he understood that like Eli was just, you know, growing up in a community that didn't understand him. And then it goes totally off the rails and not where we think it's going. My feeling was that if he had been raised differently, he would have turned out straight. What? (laughs) Austin was his first time out in the real world. He didn't want to be gay, but he just fell in with the wrong crowd. Uh, <laughs> I was like, good thing this guy is operating under a pseudonym here. He's got some opinions. It's also, it's also 85. I mean, yes, it's also 85. <laughs> he had never been out in the real world. And he just fell in with the gay crowd. <laughs> he chose it. He chose this path. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. Oh my God. Seriously. What was more concerning to Hunter was that he definitely thought that something was wrong with the relationship between Eli Stutzman and his son when he saw the two of them together at the house or on the job site. The relationship they had was almost like a master and servant, he recalled. Danny followed his father around and wasn't allowed to say anything. He wasn't a son. He was like a servant out of fear. Like the second grader's speech pathologist, Ruth Davis, who had thought that the kid was being abused, Hunter also saw bruises. Of course, I didn't see him naked or anything, but I saw bruises all over his arms, he said. Dinner at Stutzman's place one night offered additional evidence that Danny was a victim of ongoing child abuse. We were sitting at the table and Danny was just beginning to relax with me being a stranger and all. He started to talk and he began to stutter. Eli hit him in the mouth so hard, the boy fell off his chair. Holy shit. Could you imagine seeing that? I mean, I would immediately call the police. I would just yeah. be like, I would be like, okay, fuck you. I'm out of here. And yeah. I'm immediately calling the authorities. Yeah. But again, this is a totally different time. This is Texas. This is a guy, who, this is his, his employer. He said, Danny got up on his chair and like a beaten little soldier wiped the blood from his mouth and sat back at the table. He wow. didn't say another word all night. Oh, God. Hunter also wondered if the boy had been sexually abused. Eli used to pat and pinch his butt more than just a father-son type of thing. It was the way he touched him, but none of that was my business. Construction work was my bread and butter and I didn't want to mess it up. I knew something wasn't right with Eli. There's an unnatural coldness in a man who would smack his boy across the mouth the way he did. So like every adult in this story is just failing little Danny left and right. Nobody, everyone's like telling this to the author afterwards and telling this to the police afterwards, but no one when it's happening is helping this child, you know? No, I know. It's just fucking dreadful. Meanwhile, on Mother's Day, May 1985, a rancher made an unsettling discovery on his land. Following the smell of decomposition, thinking he would be finding dead livestock, the man found a dead human body rotting in a ditch. The body had clearly been there for some time. The skin was blackened and covered with white maggots. Squirt- Ew, uh, I can't with maggots. That's like a hard line for me. Just so Ooh, you know. well, 
this is not the last you've heard about the maggots because we're going to talk more about the maggots In this later. story? Yes. <laughs> Buckle up, princess, because we're going to talk about maggots. <laughs> I don't have a lot of like ew trigger. things. Yeah, trigger ewes and that maggots are one of them. Well, we're going to- Maggots gonna- and like dolls that could move. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if I can find a story where there's both. Your worst. We'll call that episode and Andy's worst nightmare. <laughs> I'll, I'll break up with your ass. Well, okay. Now that I know that, I know what to get you uh, for your birthday. A creepy doll and a maggot farm. Okay. You're disgusting. <laughs> Carry on. Guys, Andy's birthday. At, well, I, by the time this airs, your birthday will be way past, but I'm really excited because it's coming up right now. <laughs> Okay, anyways, no, I'm serious. We're going to talk about maggots, but it's not going to be gross. It's kind of cool and science-y. Mm-mm. Also, on the body, there was like a bunch of scorpions eating the maggots on the body. Isn't that crazy? Oh, Jesse. No. <laughs> okay. Well, also, his eyes had been plucked out by scavengers. Who is this? I can't tell you yet. We have to find out with the story. Is it an adult or a child? Mm-hmm, not telling you. Okay, this is fucked up. Still, the authorities could tell it had been a man, a grown man, in decently good shape, (laughs) wearing only cut-off jean shorts pushed down over his legs. They believe that the man may have been the victim of sexual assault. He wore nothing else, no shoes, no shirt, no underwear, and he appeared to have a gunshot wound to the head. Medical examiner Roberto Bayardo set to the grim task of dating the homicide and attempting to reveal more clues about the dearly departed. Here are details from the autopsy, and I gotta warn you guys, it's gonna be a little gross. Does that mean, do I get clearance to take off my headphones? No, you have to listen to this. This is your podcast. (laughs) You must suffer. Everyone else can skip ahead 30 seconds or maybe a minute. Do a minute. But you, you must listen, Andrea. (laughs) Dr. Beardo estimated the victim had been in his early 20s. His ghoul, which is like his assistant, that's what he called him, weighed and measured the body. The victim was 68 inches tall and weighed about 140 pounds. His hair was brown. The cutoff jeans were Bill Blass with a waist size of 33. Wiggins studied the cutoffs for marks or tags that might have been left by a cleaner, but there were none. Dr. Bayardo removed the cutoffs and placed them in an evidence bag. He noted that the victim's uncircumcised penis had not been mutilated. The female green fly doesn't wait long to deposit her eggs on a human corpse. As soon as the body is cool, which is about 24 hours after, females will light on the corpse and begin laying their eggs. Within seven days, the larva will grow to about a quarter of an inch in length. Though the maggots obscured much of the body, they were also of critical importance. See, this is important, Andy. This is important science detail. Dr. Bayardo measured them. The largest were five-eighths of an inch long. To Dr. Bayardo, all of the evidence taken together indicated that the victim had been dead for about four weeks, maybe as long as six. In some decomposition cases, the fingertips are plumped up with a fluid injection. Bayardo would not use that technique on the unknown man. Both hands and feet had slipped off like gloves and shoes. 
he was forced to lay the loose skin from the victim's hands over his own to make the prints for identification purposes. I hate you. <laughs> this is this is crazy, but this is how they do autopsies. I think it's fascinating. It's so gross. It's okay. It's really gross, but it's also come on, kind of fascinating. I don't know. Maybe it's just late stage pregnancy. But. <laughs> well, we're both no. late stage pregnancy. Apparently, we respond to stimuli differently in our third trimesters. Anyway, the resulting prints were good, better than he had hoped for. Some fingers were intact and he was able to roll them on the FBI standard white card. So the head was saved for last. Saw cuts were made that revealed the gunshot wound. The victim had been shot through the left eye, as was his procedure and his examination of bodies as decomposed as this one. Bayardo removed the jaws to have the x-rays and dental charts made. Beneath the scalp, Bayardo hit possible crime-solving pay dirt and retrieved a distorted mushroom-shaped 22 caliber lead projectile. Lead projectile. Though it was badly damaged from its collision with the skull, the slug was a piece of evidence that could lead to some answers. In addition, Bayardo determined the path of the bullet into the left eye and then the skull. The path was upward from the toes and into the head at about a 35 degree angle and from the right toward the left at about a 30 degree angle. He figured that the victim had been shot by someone shorter than he was or that he may have been shot while lying on his back. Those creepily extracted fingerprints would prove gold to the investigators as they ended up matching a man in a military database, specifically the Coast Guard. Eli's roommate, friend, employee, and perhaps lover was identified as the man in the ditch. Danny? Glenn. Glenn, that's right, that's right. Glenn Glenn? 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 It's Glenn Pritchett. Shit. So it definitely seemed like Eli had struck again and he had some explaining to do. Mother Hen Wanda had moved to Hawaii and was back in Austin for a month long visit socializing with her nephew, Denny, and old friend Eli. She was also hoping to see Glenn, whom she regarded as a son type figure. But Eli told her that Glenn's son had gotten into a near fatal car accident in Montana and was in critical condition. Oh, so he's like lying about where Glenn is. Hundred percent. That's messy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a liar. He lies about everything. On June fourteenth, when Wanda left, concerned about Pritchett, Eli told her he had just gotten off the phone with him, and that quote he told me complications have set in and the baby will have to be put in traction. Sounds real bad to me. Eli drove Wanda to the airport and she instructed him to pass on her well wishes to Glenn and his family. Meanwhile, I mean, he has been discovered by now and they knew he was dead for weeks. So by the very next day after Eli drops Wanda off at the airport, the authorities were knocking on Eli's door as it was Glenn's last known address. Eli told investigators that he had dropped Glenn off on a bus to Montana in May. Eli admitted he had had a horse he boarded nearby the body dump site, and he also owned a 22 rifle. But what really tipped the police off, I mean, other than the fact that he said he had dropped him off in May when clearly the body had been there since April, yeah, was that Eli showed absolutely no reaction of surprise that his friend and employee had been killed, nor did he seem particularly interested. 
The detective on the case later said, most people are alarmed and ask questions about a murder involving a friend. Eli Hutzman didn't ask a single question. That's like sociopathic because you just like can't even try to pretend to. You can't even think about what it's like to be a normal person. Yeah. No, it's like not even possible. Yeah. The police wanted to question members of the household, including a young man named Sam Miller, who had come to work for Eli from Amish country. He later recalled Eli admitting the murder to him on his way back home from the police interview. In the pickup on the way back from the courthouse, an agitated Stutzman started to ramble, his words strung together with barely a gap between them. Miller heard Stutzman say one thing clearly, I killed him. He was getting in the way and I had to do something. Stutzman Uh, said it as though the excuse could justify the act. Miller was too shocked to respond. I had to, Stutzman continued, but don't worry, it'll all blow over. If they question you again, just keep quiet. Don't say anything. You don't know anything. Keep quiet. Miller took it as a threat. If Stutzman had killed Pritchett, his roommate, his friend, he just might kill again. And he's already killed. Miller sank low in his seat. Was knowing something like this as bad as participating? He listened as Stutzman went on repeating, I had to, but don't worry. Miller didn't ask for details. He already knew more than he could handle. When they got home, Miller grabbed a beer and turned on the TV. Then Eli and Danny joined him in the living room. Again, as unlikely as it seemed and as unnecessary as it was, Stutzman talked about the murder. This time he told Miller that he had been forced to move the body. I was afraid someone would find it, he said. Again, Sam asked no questions. According to Miller, Danny Stutzman also heard his father talking about committing the murder and hiding the body, but the boy had no real reaction to the information. It didn't seem to be news to him. Stutzman said something about a funeral in Dallas-Fort Worth, and he left for the rest of the day. Danny went with his father. Miller kept his mouth shut and didn't tell anyone what Stutzman had said. He didn't want to end up dumped in a ditch in the middle of nowhere. He realized that coming to Austin was the biggest mistake of his life. So Denny Rustin, who also lived with them, also was wanted for questioning and told the police that he had last seen Glenn on April 19th when he left for Iowa. So Denny took a a trip to Iowa. When he returned home from his trip mid-May, Eli had told him the same shtick about Glenn going back to Montana and his son. The day of the police questioning, Eli was packing up he and Danny to leave, telling Denny his lawyer instructed him to get out of town. Denny couldn't fathom why his attorney would tell him that, but gave him some money and let him leave. A neighbor later reported to the police that he had heard Glenn and Eli loudly arguing sometime in April in the front yard. Apparently, Eli had screamed, you're either going to be screwing me or someone else. But the neighbor could not tell if it was a reference to business dealings or sex. Like, was it screw me over or screw me, you know? Yeah. Denny Rustin turned over some forged pay sheets he had found in Eli's room that suggested Eli had owed Glenn quite a bit of back pay and forged that it was paid in full after his death. Oh, gross. Uh He also recorded a phone call for the police in which he got Eli on the phone and got Eli talking. And Eli admitted that the gun used in Glenn's murder had been his 22, though he wouldn't confess to pulling the trigger. It was more like, 
what a wild coincidence that my gun was used in a murder, and that's why the police incorrectly think I killed him. Oh, my God. Yeah, a likely story. The authorities knew Eli was their killer, but by now, Eli and his son Danny were in the wind. It would take over two years and three more deaths before they would get their hands back on Eli Stutzman. Whoa. Yep, this guy is dangerous. Eli and Danny's first stop was back to Four Corners, where they stayed with an old friend of Eli's in Aztec, New Mexico. His friends encouraged him to go back to Austin and help the law straighten the situation out, believing Eli to be innocent. Eli refused, saying that if he was arrested, they would send his son back to Ohio to be raised by his parents, and he, quote, would much rather see Danny dead than have him live with the Amish. Ew. Chilling. You're gonna, you'd rather have your son die. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that, that's what I think is at like the crux of what happens to Danny ultimately. On July 5th, 1985, Eli dropped Danny off with Dean and Maggie Barlow in Wyoming and signed over temporary guardianship of his son, which is good. I'm glad somebody else is watching Danny at this point. Um, yeah. Dean had been involved with Eli sexually at some point, but the couple was otherwise a totally average pair of school teachers. So, you know, like we always say, swingers, they walk among us. <laughs> you never know when nice school teachers are having weird guys over for sex. <laughs> <laughs> So he gave the Barlows a couple of checks to cover some of Danny's support and told them that he couldn't take Danny with him because an employee of his had been murdered in Texas and he was going to track the killer himself. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Like he's this like Texas Walker Ranger over here. Eli went back to Aztec, New Mexico, where he applied for a new social security number with a different middle name. And yeah, so he changed his middle name, but he's still... Still kept Eli Stutzman, which is weird. And he lived in a trailer on a ranch he was employed at. He lied to his and Ida's family through letters claiming that he and Danny had moved to New Mexico together on June 15th and that Danny was now at summer camp. Danny stayed with the Barlows throughout the fall and Eli went so far as to forge letters from his own son to family members claiming that he had joined the soccer team and stating how much he loved his new school. I feel like the fact that both sets of families and grandparents are Amish definitely helped him with these lies because they were only conversing through letters. So they can't like be like, put him on the phone, you know? Yeah. Or let's check it. Well, I guess the internet didn't exist yet, but. Yeah. So there was like just no way that they could really check on Danny. Yeah. Because they also weren't like, you know, jumping on a plane or anything. Yeah. Yeah. So meanwhile, Eli was back up to his old tricks on the run or not. He still needed to get some ass. So Eli continued to pick up men, especially in the Four Corners gay scene. One man he consorted with was a 36-year-old automotive shop owner named David Tyler. One of Eli's friends recalls a night spent partying at a hotel bar in Durango where Tyler approached Eli's table. Get the fuck out of here, Stutzman told Tyler, who immediately left for the hotel restroom. Before Eli got up to follow Tyler, he said to his friend, if Tyler would pay me what he owes me, I'd never have to work again. The friend believed he was talking about drugs as both Eli and David were involved in the drug scene. 
Not long after that run-in, David Tyler was found dead in a truck bed outside of his automotive shop. What? Yep. Only days after being spotted together, he had been bludgeoned to death. Only two days before, he had been spotted at a drug-laden party at the Holiday Inn with other men from the gay scene, including Eli Stutzman. I was I was going to ask what type of hotel we thought it was, so it was a Holiday Inn. It was a Holiday Inn, which seemed like the spot in Durango, apparently, at the time. Oof. Only three weeks later, 24-year-old Dennis Slater was found shot to death in a basement room of the Junction Creek Liquor Store where he worked as a clerk. There was no evidence of a struggle, so the cops surmised that the young man had been taken at gunpoint to the basement or he had known his killer. Slater had been a known associate of David Tyler's, often spending time with the other deceased man and doing drugs with him. It could not be confirmed, but many suspected that the affable college student was also gay, which, of course, terrified the gay scene in Four Corners. Yeah. Like somebody is picking them off. Yep, 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 yep. It had been more than three years since a murder had occurred in Durango, and now there had been two in less than a month. Men who were known to be associated with each other. Only eight days after Dennis Slater's body was discovered, Eli left New Mexico for good. Convenient timing. The friends of his who owned the ranch no longer wanted him around. And of course, he may have had his own reasons for wanting to get out of Dodge. On December 13th, Eli left to pick up Danny in Wyoming. And he stopped on his way to buy a blue pair of footy pajamas at a Farmington, New Mexico Kmart to give Danny as a Christmas present. Well, in Farmington, before he picked up Danny, he posted a letter to a man who goes by the pseudonym of Al Jorgensen in the book, stating that he didn't think his son would be joining him over the holidays. Instead, he was electing to stay with friends in Wyoming. Eli uh, mm-hmm. Eli reached Wyoming the next day after posting this letter on December 14th, and the Barlows bid adieu to the quiet little boy who had been their charge for the last six months. No one would ever see Danny alive ever again. Uh, the very next night on December 15th, Eli ended up in Kansas to stay with a man he had met through the personal ads in The Advocate. Eli told the man, who had been expecting both father and son, that the child had elected to stay with friends in Wyoming. In reality, Eli had dumped his son's body in a ditch in a remote cornfield in Nebraska, and poor Danny, or Little Boy Blue as he would come to be called, wouldn't be found until that cold Christmas Eve day by a man out pheasant hunting. So fucked up. So here we are back at the beginning. So after Chuck Cleveland reported the body, the police took the child for an autopsy. Obviously, they discovered that it was a little boy at this point. Little Boy Blue, as they called him, was determined to be roughly 10 years of age. Danny was actually around nine at this time. In good nutrition and well cared for, seemingly. The only identifying features were a small birthmark and a circular burn scar, the exact shape and size of a cigarette burn. Uh, Poor baby. 
The child's lip and nose had been nibbled off by field mice, but there was no other apparent injuries. There was no evidence that the child had been strangled or beaten. The best answer for cause of death was suffocation, maybe, the kind one would suffer if smothered with a pillow. Immediately, the coroner and police were perplexed by the lack of an obvious cause of death, and they also feared the ability to identify him because... You know, usually, statistically, the parents or caretakers are the ones that kill kids, you know, for the most part. But those are the ones that you also count on to report a child missing. So they're like, no one's going to report this kid missing, you know? Yep. Furthermore, the child didn't have any fillings in his teeth, which made the investigators doubt whether there would be any dental records at all to eventually match. There was no evidence he had ever been to a dentist. Yep. Over the next few months, the investigators would comb through a nation's worth of missing children, hire a sketch artist to recreate the child's face, and distribute the photo nationally, as well as chase down leads far and wide to no avail. In late January, after all possible evidence was logged, Danny was laid to rest thanks to contributions from the Chester, Nebraska church communities. The gravestone read, little boy, abandoned, found near Chester, Nebraska, December 24th, 1985, who we have called Matthew, which means gift of God, leaving hopeful space for the boy's true identity to be added in the future. It would take nearly two years before a magazine publication would help crack the case on little boy Blue's identity. Just before Thanksgiving 1987, Reader's Digest ran an article titled The Little Boy Blue of Chester, Nebraska. At that time, Reader's Digest had a readership of over 50 million people, a reach that exceeded what any law enforcement agency could do in 1987. Mm. Eventually, a Mennonite couple that had babysat Danny back in Ohio and the Barlows got in touch with a publication who passed the leads on to the Chester PD. Eli had spent the better part of the last two years lying to everyone he knew about Danny's whereabouts. In the immediate term after he abandoned Danny's body, he told friends and family that Danny had just stayed in Wyoming to enjoy skiing with his friends. By April of 1986, he began to try out a new lie to the men he met and old friends whose homes he stopped by in his travels, that Danny had died in a tragic car accident in Wyoming. So he maintained a different charade to the Gingriches and his own parents throughout the spring and most of the summer that Danny was with him in New Mexico playing soccer, losing his baby teeth and having an altogether great time. By July 30th, 1986, however, he finally told the Amish grandparents via letter that Danny was dead as the result of a car accident in Salt Lake City, Utah. So he's used wow. this one with Glenn's kids. With his kid in Wyoming, in Salt Lake City. He wow. claimed to have tried to contact them to make arrangements so that they could come to the funeral, but there had been a problem with the local post office, so he had gone ahead and buried Danny himself in the Barlow's family cemetery. Wow. Uh-huh. So in November of that year, the Gingriches, who really wanted answers about what happened to their grandchild even traveled by train to meet the Barlows. But the Barlows could provide no answers. They could only confirm that Danny had not died in a car accident, at least to their knowledge. They did not have a family cemetery and they hadn't been able to reach Eli for some time. You know, Whoa. they did, they're like, whoa. 
So these Amish people come out of like nowhere and is like, are like, can we see our grandson in your family cemetery? And they're like, what? Whoa. Mm hmm. The Gingriches went home confused and saddened. The last link to their daughter gone from the world. Yep. When the Barlows discovered the Reader's Digest article, they sent it with a letter to Amos Gingrich, Ida's father, with their suspicions. On December of 1987, the Nebraska police finally began to track down Eli Stutzman based on the positive identification of Danny Stutzman, which... The way that they confirmed finally that it was definitely Danny was super sad. Obviously, they had his fingerprints. They asked the Barlows to send something that would have Danny's fingerprints on it. And they sent his favorite book, a copy of The Velveteen Rabbit. Oh, no. I know. It just hits you right in the heart. So once they knew who Danny was, obviously they knew who Eli was. They discovered his two social security numbers, that his wife had tragically died in a mysterious fire, that he was wanted in suspicion of murder of his Texas roommate, who had also coincidentally been discovered in a ditch, just like little boy Blue. Through a series of payments and records and good old-fashioned police work, they finally tracked Eli down in Azle, Texas, where he was found living under an assumed name, David Summers, in a decrepit trailer on a rural dead-end road. I mean, the funny thing about it was that the dead-end road was called Summers Street. So he, like, so not even creatively came up with his, he's like, David plus the street I live on. (laughs) It's like when you find out what your poor name is. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like your pet's name in the street you grew up on or something. Yeah. So Eli was arrested for felony child abuse. The detective searched his trailer and found mm, not so much evidence other than the number of a doctor who later reported that he was treating Eli for a head injury and management of his HIV. Which, like, dude, you should have worn a condom. And And how many people do you think he probably infected? Exactly what I thought. I was like, he is so criminally negligent. Yeah, because he didn't give a shit about anyone but himself. I mean, this this guy probably knew at some point and still didn't use a condom. Of course. Yeah. Eli's story about what happened to Danny was that he had picked up Danny sick from the Barlows. The Barlows did later confirm that Danny had had a cold, but they had provided Eli with just some like over the counter cold medication to administer to the boy. Eli claimed that after stopping at a truck stop to eat, he had changed Danny into the blue pajamas. Then Danny wrapped himself in a blanket and fell asleep. After a few hours of silence while he was driving and Danny was in the backseat, he assumed Danny was sleeping. He finally checked in on him and realized that his little head had fallen and become wedged between the thick blanket and a piece of luggage. At that point, he said he discovered his son's eyes rolled back into the back of his head and he appeared not to be breathing. So Eli says, I don't know, maybe he was really sick. Maybe he suffocated himself. Eli could not explain why, instead of seeking medical attention, he drove to a remote field in Nebraska and dumped his only child like a bag of trash. Because he's a murderer. Because he's a murderer. He said some bullshit about how he wanted to lay Danny in the sun where God would find him. 
Like he's like, I didn't like try to bury him or anything. It's like also it was December in Nebraska. Of course you didn't try to bury him. The ground was frozen. So you just left him. Yeah, so the investigators weren't having any of that. Right, I was going to say, I can't believe he's even trying to make an excuse. It's ridiculous. Most horrifyingly, Eli admitted that he wasn't entirely sure if Danny had actually been dead when he abandoned him in the freezing temperature of a mid-December day in Nebraska. It is quite possible that the reason the coroner couldn't pinpoint a method of murder was because Danny froze to death. Wow, you're the shittiest human ever. Just the worst dirtbag ever. So it seems like what is most likely is either that Eli smothered him because he like brought up that he might have accidentally been smothered or he could have incapacitated him with cold medication and then left him out to freeze to death. Both are horrifying options. Horrifying. So the cops believe that the reason why Eli had killed Danny was twofold. One, Danny knew that Eli had killed Glenn Pritchett, and as he grew older, he'd become harder to control and could have told somebody. And number two, Danny interfered with his hard partying lifestyle, just like like his mother and his unborn sibling ahead of him. Like, it's the same thing. It was like, Danny stands in my way, and he had six months without him, and now he had to pick him up, and he was going to get in the way of his partying. Gross. just don't have kids or just leave them. I know he said that thing about the Amish, but leave them with the grandparents. Either set of grandparents would have been delighted, delighted to have Danny. Yeah. Unfortunately, with the inconclusive autopsy results, it was nearly impossible to charge Eli with murder. Based on his own statements to police, they could charge and hold him for abandoning a body and concealing a death. He was eventually sentenced to one year in jail for the charge of abandoning the body and six months for the concealing of a death to be served concurrently. While Eli served his sentence in Nebraska, authorities in Texas were working hard to build a case against him in the first degree murder of Glenn Pritchett. Nebraska officials felt like they had been robbed of justice for poor little boy Blue, and they were happy that he would at least be potentially put behind bars for his other crimes. Yep. In July of 1989, Eli was tried for Glenn Pritchett's murder. The prosecution was not allowed to discuss Danny's death at all and had scant hard evidence against him. Almost all of the evidence was circumstantial. In the end, the bullets found in Glenn's body proved too destroyed to match conclusively to Eli's gun, unfortunately. Okay. The defense attorneys were so sure that Eli would walk free that they didn't even offer up any witnesses in their client's defense. That's why everyone was shocked when on only day four of the trial and after a quick lunch of cheeseburgers and Coca-Colas, the jury returned a swift guilty verdict. Yay. Yay. I know. They must have just been emotional because everyone was surprised by this. Everyone was like, whoa, okay. But we're glad, of course. Eli was sentenced to 40 years in the Texas Department of Corrections at Huntsville. In the end, many questions still remain. How did Danny really die? Was Eli truly the killer of the two men in Durango? In the epilogue of Abandoned Prayers, Greg Olson wrote an update to the mysterious murders as follows. 
1990, Stutzman emerged as a key suspect in the Colorado murders of David Tyler and Dennis Slater. Durango detective Tony Arculetta plowed through the files of the stalled investigation, launched a relentless series of interviews, and uncovered more information linking Stutzman and Tyler. He also faced the same frustrating problem that had dogged others working on Stutzman-related cases. Many witnesses were reluctant or outright refused to come forward because they were gay and feared being labeled homosexual. That conspiracy of fear and silence helped lead Danny Stutzman to the Nebraska cornfield. From their pastoral settlements, the Amish still wonder and talk about themselves about Ida Stutzman's death. They refuse to pass final judgment, only God can, and many decline to make definitive statements about her death. Most are diplomatic and simply say they fear Eli killed Ida. Stutzman is a diabolical star in a community that abhors media attention. So I think what's really interesting is that like the gay community of the 1980s, like 70s and 80s, and the Amish community could not be more different. But in this particular case, you know, the the kind of cloistering of silence out of necessity for, you know, the gay community for their safety and the risk of persecution for both communities really ended up harboring, unfortunately, this evil person, you know? Yep. It's crazy. They're so different, but it was the same result. It was like the Amish out of tradition do not mix with Englishers. They don't go to the police for problems. They don't talk to the media and the gay community couldn't because they would be murdered or injured or face unbelievable discrimination, you know? Yep. Yeah. So sad. It's just a really, really sad situation all around. Um, Okay. Do you want to be pissed off? Mm. (laughs) No, but you're going to. Eli was paroled. You were lying. Uh, uh, he was paroled way before his sentence was over. So Greg Olson said 2003. Murderpedia said he was paroled in 2005. And then the Star-Telegram said he was paroled in 2002. So I can't tell you exactly when he was paroled, but he served less than half of his sentence by a lot. Like even if he was paroled in 2005, that's only 16 years of a 40-year sentence. Okay, Why? I don't know. I really don't know why they let him out other than they, I guess that the evidence was still so scant against him, even though the jury voted guilty. I think that his lawyers who appealed and got him parole could be like, we don't know if he actually ever did this. This was the evidence like at trial and it wasn't very good, you know? Okay. So they let him out after serving, obviously like no time at all. But if justice wasn't served on earth, I bet it was in the afterlife because Eli killed himself in early 2007 in his apartment in Fort Worth, Texas. And though I think death couldn't have come to a better guy, I'm kind of like pissed off that none of these families ever had answers. He never admitted what he did. He never admitted what really happened to Danny. He never admitted if he killed those two men in Durango so their families don't know what the hell happened to them. I'm sure he did. Yeah. I mean, that's what Greg Olson really believed in the book that he killed those two men. Okay. Because there wasn't another murder after that. It was only happened in that small band of time that Eli was in Durango. Yeah. Come on. 
And he knew both of the men. Yeah. He was like involved with them yeah. in some way. And he was at that point, it's like he had already killed his wife. It was supposedly his best friend. He was on his way to killing his son. Or yeah. no, had he already right. killed his son? I don't know. I can't even keep track. Uh, no, he didn't. He kill hadn't his killed son his son yet. yet. Yeah. So, I mean, what would stop him from killing some random guys? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So, that story is so insane. Aren't you glad we did the Amish ones in that order? I am. Because <laughs> this story was like, I ordered it because um, I like Greg Olson and I also and really enjoyed the first Amish true crime story we covered. But this this story blew my doors off. Yeah, this is pretty crazy. I feel like there's so many layers. There's so many layers. There's there's so much that went wrong and there's so many unanswered questions still. Exactly. I think that's the, obviously the most frustrating part. Well, if you guys liked this crazy, maybe a little too sexual story. Um, I don't think it was too sexual okay, at all. Okay, I tried to to tamp it down a little bit because the, the sexual content in the book was through I the mean, roof. We definitely should ask the audience what they thought, but. <laughs> yeah, if you guys liked it, give us a good review, please. And thank you. In conclusion, y'all, my Google search history is just all murder and gay sex right now. Send help. You got to clear that cash, babe. got to clear that cash. <laughs> if you want to, uh, you know, enjoy the life of sex, drugs, and potentially ticklers, just leave the kiddos at the grandparents. 100%. You don't need to bring them along for the ride. 100%, especially the ticklers. <laughs> you might get confused, you know? Yeah. Or think it's like a cat toy or something. Yeah, I mean, it could be. Yeah. <laughs> and as always, we're all just one really bad Amish guy away from getting murdered. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.